Hello, 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 and welcome to Invasion of the Potty People, the November edition. Ooh. We're back, we're back, and we've also got myself, Russell, Vincent, and James. How are we all doing, guys? Can you feel the spice flowing through the podcast waves? Yeah, sorry, I overdid it on paprika on my meal. Uh, yeah, what a happens. Easily done. Nice little tease of what's coming. Things can get spicy in our reviews, aren't they, guys? Oh, <laughs> they are. Are they ever? Why wasn't it called Spice Up Your Life? Why wasn't didn't they use that song at all? It's my only real issue of it. Like, it should be called Spice World. Yeah, I'm going to say there may have been a problem with copyright. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we're going to talk about what is one of the big films of the year. I mean, big in every sense of the word in terms of its cast, in terms of its scope, its scale, in terms of music, in terms of how it looks. Everything about it is probably the biggest film of the year. Maybe not the new Spider-Man movie. We'll see if it's the Spider-Man movie. But yeah, pretty big film. But before that point, we're going to you know, dive into a bit of news, a bit of like what's going on in the world of horror. And we're going to review, of course, Dune, which, you know, I'm excited for. And then in a reverse from last edition, so we did the Sin Bin last time where we chucked in stuff that really pisses us off. This time, we're going to elevate some films. We're going to be positive and lift up some films that you should seek out that maybe are either not that critically loved or audiences haven't really found them or we just think should be talked about more. And then we're going to end with our, as always, something section. So something old, something new, and something not a movie. But to kick things off, let's talk slashers. <laughs> now, guys, did you all go watch Halloween Kills? Did you all watch Michael Myers go through a whole horde of annoying characters? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Now. Oh, yeah. It led me to think whether or not the slasher is back because of late there's been a lot of slasher and slasher adjacent stuff so we've in this podcast talked about the things like freaky wrong term candy man and i mean you can argue of not wrong term and candy man and slashers but they certainly have slasher tropes and we've also had the fear street trilogy this year and the big halloween release this time was of course halloween kills the follow-up to 2018's Halloween made a ton of money, about $130 million around the world. It was number one for a couple of weeks. It was a big, 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 big release. We've also got uh, on TV, you can find Chucky. You can find a new Child's Play TV show, which is coming to the UK through Sky in December, I believe. You've got I Know What You Did Last Summer as a TV show. We've got a new Slumber Party Massacre, which I have seen. And I'll be honest with you, it's a darn good watch and it might, I might prefer it to Halloween Kills. It's a lot of fun and it's a really interesting take on the slasher genre. We've got Scream coming in January. We've got another Halloween entry. Yes, he's killed and now it's time for Halloween to end with Halloween ends. And at some point we're going to get the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Netflix film, which uh, was brought by Netflix and then they've gone quiet on it. So at some point next year, we'll get that. So there's a lot of people being killed. There's a lot of inventive kills, a lot of franchises coming back. And so I thought we should start this one, this episode, by talking about whether or not we think the slasher is back or whether we think it's something else. So before we get into all of that, what did you guys think of Halloween Kills? James, what were your thoughts on this, the 12th, if you include the Rob Zombie films? 
edition of the Halloween franchise? Well, I it's very well known about me that Halloween, the 1978 original, is my all-time favourite horror film. And what David Gordon Green did with bringing the franchise back to a less convoluted place, taking away a soap opera element to clean up the timeline a bit, is I really liked what he did back in the 2018 film. So I had extremely high hopes for what he was going to do with the follow-up. And I really liked watching Michael hack and slash his way through hordes of innocent civilians and his firefighter massacre at the beginning is was a treat to watch on the big screen. But I think I was a bit let down with the film because I thought it had interesting ideas, but I think it was juggling a bit too many balls because on top of Michael on a rampage, there was Haddonfield fighting back, which was interesting as it gave into mob rule. And then we had... Um, all the characters split up in their own sections. So we had um, Laurie Strode recovering in the hospital after the events of the last film, her daughter, uh, Karen, looking after her in that same hospital. And then we had her daughter who was out helping hunt Michael with her ex-boyfriend and a load of returning franchise stalwarts. And it just felt like, there was a bit too much going on that I think it diluted it a bit for me. And I don't think it helped that this were, we know Halloween ends is coming in a couple of years time. Yes. Yes. I next think. Year, oh, didn't realize it was that soon. Yeah. Apparently it's coming out next October. Huh, apparently they haven't even started filming it yet. Well, so you don't need time. You could just do it quickly. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Huh, hey, take a page, take a page out of John Carpenter's book. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> I think knowing there was one more to come, this suffered from middle chapter syndrome. So when certain elements happened, I the tension wasn't there for me because I knew, well, this isn't going to have lasting effects because we've got one more film to go. And I, I thought there was much to admire and much to enjoy, but for me, it didn't land as much as I wanted it to. Um, Vincent, were you more positive on it? Um, you know, it's funny, if you'd asked me that half an hour ago, or if you'd asked me first, I probably would have said yes. Um, <laughs> but oddly enough, um, Rodders, hearing what you've been saying, I'm like, oh, hang on. Yeah, that's a problem. And that's a problem. I enjoyed Halloween Kills. Um, I, uh, I th- The fact that it is probably the goriest Halloween to date with the most... Uh, kills I enjoyed I liked how um, out and out gory it was and it's like yeah here we're gonna see Michael go on a rampage um, all while keeping it at his very deliberate pace however it does suffer from being too diffuse and it's like right there's this thing going on and there's that thing going on and there's this thing and I imagine we probably all agree we got sick of hearing evil dies tonight um, fairly quickly. Um, apparently, if something's worth saying, it's worth saying 50 times. Repetition um, is key because evil does die tonight. And I repeat, okay, evil yes. does die tonight. 
So does evil die tonight? Can I just be sure on that? At some point, evil will die, maybe tonight. Okay. We'll right. find out because repetition is key. Hmm. <laughs> we may find out because repetition is key. But even though Halloween, but even though evil may die, in theory, um, will Halloween end? Um, I wasn't particularly bothered by being the middle chapter. And I think that's because I sort of, in the spirit of Halloween, certainly, and slashers in general, we kind of always expect there's going to be another one. Um, so even if this, if I hadn't known for sure this was the second of a trilogy of sorts, um, I, I probably wouldn't have um, bothered me. Um, so yeah, I think it had, it's, it was quite fun. As a slasher, I enjoyed it, but there were, a, but thinking about it, there's plenty of points where it's like, yeah, get on with it, please. Um, yeah, and it does kind of undo its own law um, in that regard, because, you know, it, uh, Laurie Strode has the line at one point, Michael Myers is flesh and blood, but the more he kills, the more he transcends. So what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, maybe we'll find out in Halloween Ends. I'll say one thing, though. It did prompt me to imagine I, I would love to see the crossover fight between Michael Myers and Batman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's have the two masked men going at it. I'd put money on Batman. He's beaten big lugs like this before. So if Haddonfield had Batman, they'd be fine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it's okay. But I've seen better. And but yeah, and I've seen worse in this franchise. In this franchise, we've been to much darker. I don't mean in terms of uh, content places. You mean you mean dumber. Dumber, we've had five, six in <laughs> Resurrection, and yeah, and those are all terrible films. And this was a perfectly entertaining Friday night film, but I probably shouldn't root for Michael Myers in a Halloween film. And Lord, I was rooting for him <laughs> in the last act to just decimate some of the more annoying characters. Um, but it got me thinking because there are a lot of franchises back. So, as I said, we've got a new Child's Play TV show, we've got the likes of Candyman has returned. In one form or another, we've got uh, so many, so many. Scream is coming back. Scream is probably the most hyped horror film to come out in the next six months or so. So I was curious whether or not this meant that Slashers were back. If Slashers had ever really gone away, because they've always been around since the 80s, there's always been waves of Slasher films. We can debate whether or not we think Candyman is a Slasher or the Saw franchise is a Slasher franchise, but... There's been some variant of tropes that the slasher genre uses that have come back. So I wondered if it's just a case that they've always been here and it now just feels that they're more prom prominent. Or if it is once again that sweet, sweet nostalgia drug that we're all kind of hooked to that all oh, because these are films that come from IPs, come from recognizable names. Even Slumber Party Massacre is now a recognizable name, has multiple sequels and is good enough to come back and deserves to come back, given that I've had a lot of fun with it. So I wondered what you guys thought, if you thought it was that slashes are going to come back, that we're going to get another great wave of slashes like we got after Scream or after, I guess, Friday the 13th is probably the, those are the two main waves we got and we get increasingly less waves. Or if you think it's just because these are names, because there's this feeling that you can guarantee success. And I know that, that make the rights owners or well, various rights owners of Friday the 13th would love to resolve their legal issues and do a new one because yeah that would that would be perfect right now so I wondered if you thought it was that they're 
is a new desire for slashes that's the horror subgenre that's going to take hold or if it is the nostalgia drug again see i think it's quite telling that um of the slashes which come back it's we're taking notice because big names are back chucky halloween scream's going to come back and i i think the slasher subgenre is something like vampires or zombies which sure it'll have increased popularity here and there perhaps with like uh, The Walking Dead or True Blood come to TV and do do a big show which is well-regarded, well-watched to kind of say, hey, these are back. Get on the hype train. I think with Slashers, we've gotten the big franchises. In terms of original stuff, it's a bit more thin on the ground. So we got on Freaky and Happy Death Day, of course, wonderful additions to the slasher subgenre but i think they're more i think it's more a reimagining of a well-known trope so slasher body swap slasher time loop film and i don't think there's anything which is kind of firmly planted itself into the ground as more no twists or no twists on a formula or anything just a slasher here and there like friday the 13th was back in the day i don't think there's anything like that i think it's just another case of we've got the big but big franchises back much in the vein as we've had jurassic park and star wars come back it's big properties being released by the big boys of the film industry i mean Fear Street trilogy had its roots in R.L. Stein books, so that's also a property um, banking on nostalgia in a way, um, particularly when you watch the films as well. And those are my thoughts, a bit rambly, but they're mine. Yeah, uh, the nostalgia thing is, I think, what sticks out for me. And uh, to let you guys in briefly on the, the meat that goes into this sausage, beforehand we discussed what news we were going to talk about, and we uh, circled talking about Leaf Weapon 5 but you know what, I don't want to talk about Mel Gibson that much, and The New Predator okay. and both of those are existing IPs from the 80s that are coming back and so maybe it's just as with everything the stuff that's going to get made is going to be the stuff from existing franchises, I mean we are recording this the day before a new Ghostbusters comes out, and I have to remind myself on a daily basis there is a new Ghostbusters coming out not that that's any judgment of what the new Ghostbusters is like but it's just I it doesn't stick in my brain. Um, yeah, so, uh, Vincent, I wondered if you had any thoughts. Do you think it's that it's nostalgia? Do you think that we'll get a slash that breaks out? That Because even something like Freaky, which is well, tends to be an original slasher, it works because you know the tropes. You know how a slasher film works. I mean, it's closest probably to what the late 90s slashers were. So the urban legends, the screams that I know what you did last summer is all original but all relied upon a previous knowledge of slasher films. So I wonder what you thought of that, Vincent. I think the previous knowledge is important in multiple ways. It's important, as you've already said, in terms of the existing IP. The existing IP, it's what, um, the, it's what studios are working with, working with the existing IP and therefore bringing back that which the expectation is has an inbuilt market. Um, 
similarly, familiarity plays into nostalgia. It's a matter of that's what's there for the audience. And I think there's a certain amount of crossover as well between, in this case, the um, <clears throat> the producers and the audience, because let's not forget that the a lot of the people in studios right now who are actually going to be making these decisions are people who probably grew up on these kind of things in the 80s and 90s and are therefore kind of wanting to revisit their own material in the same way that you mentioned Star Wars, people like J.J. Abrams and ugh, Joss Whedon did as well. Um, you know, they incorporated their own fandoms into the, into the things that they produce. Now, if we think about the slashes more broadly, I think you could, this is very reductive here that I'm gonna suggest, that we've got slashes being developed in the 70s, then saturating the market in the 80s. Then in the 90s, we got the self-awareness. And I think we could say over the last couple of decades, we have had sort of experimentations, riffs on them with things like Saw and It Follows, um, arguably doing something, uh, doing something that is slasher-like, but without the familiar tropes. And what we now have are the familiar tropes coming back on the one hand with the familiarity, as we've said. Um, but I think it's very interesting, um, the point you made, James, about um, we're seeing slasher plus something else. So I think this idea of um, kind of genre hybridization is what is what we might be seeing more of. Um, and for that, we can probably thank the MCU because many of the films in the MCU work as superhero film plus something else, uh, whether it's conspiracy thriller in Captain America, The Winter Soldier, or um, high school comedy in Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, so in the case of slashes, I think we may be seeing something similar. And I do think the key texts here is our Fear Street, because Fear Street operates on a basis of it is we get a um, kind of a nostalgic reworking of Scream in part one. Then we get a nostalgic re reworking effectively of Friday the 13th. And then we get something that is you know, not dissimilar to something far more recent, like The Witch, or maybe going back to ideas of folk horror um, in the case of something like um, The Wicker Man or Blood on Satan's Claw. Um, but I think what is more important about Fear Street is that it's Netflix. There is, and you know, some of the different shows that you've meant that you mentioned, Russell, are going to be on Netflix. These are available through mm. streaming, and I think that's significant. That the distribution and consumption models have changed. Um, this much we know, and that plays into the nostalgia and the existing IP. Somebody like Netflix can buy the rights to this sort of thing, and then the audience is there. The audience who maybe. Um, they may feel that they're being served by cinema offerings, but they might also feel that there's more, for the, but they may also go for something that's available for them on streaming. So I think we're seeing, I think the simple answer to the original question after this long convoluted uh, walk through um, the small town, probably carrying a big knife, is that, yes, I think the slasher is back. And I think it's coming back because of a number of factors um, in that respect. And of course, always remember that particular, the case of the horror genre, it's often at its most productive um, during times of strife. And the past 
well, certainly the past decade has been a pretty, you know, strife-ridden one. And there's an interesting uh, piece on um, Moving Pictures Film Movie Club um, all about discussing Halloween kills in the context of a post-Trump America. And I would say that aspect is key. And we're probably, and I think we may see more of that kind of um, slasher plus vigilante uh, mob film. Um, and as I heard in, a, in another podcast, um, the, the crossover that they wanted to see, and I want to see it too, is Halloween meets The Purge. <laughs> um, so I think that there's um, a lot to be said for the return of the slasher. I don't know if it's ever gone away, but I do think that Freaky, that, uh, Happy Birthday to You, uh, sorry, Happy Death Day and Freaky do suggest we're going to, get, and Fear Street suggests we're going to get more. Um, I don't think Scream is going to be in any way the last of them. They're back. <laughs> um, which are you two, name one that you're most excited for that's coming up. So James, uh, what are you most excited for in the next year that's coming out? Um, just slashers or just slashers, just, just, or slasher trope ones. You can... Well, then I gotta go for Scream. Sorry, Vincent. Oh, gotta get in there first, but <laughs> Scream and Scream 2 were some of the first horror films I watched. And it's wonderful when you rewatch something as a kid and pro- something you saw as a kid, rewatch as an adult and think, actually, this is still good. And it very much is that very witty, very funny, very tense, terrifying in places. And I look forward to see what the directors of the fantastic ready or not are going to do helming this film mm, vincent what's your pick well i would have gone for scream it was pretty much <laughs> my uh, gateway drug into horror as well um so i guess i'll have to, i'll say uh, halloween ends um you know a year a, a year ahead um i'll be interested to see how it ends can we get to see michael myers you know properly decapitated this time and again or you know, blow, blown up, dismembered. Um, yeah, that's uh, if you know if Laurie's going to go down, uh, go down swinging, take him out. I'm okay with that. Um, but I, I hope it is a bit more stripped down. Um, again, let's. I think you know, after the um, excess of Halloween kills, it'd be nice for Halloween to for Halloween to end in a more succinct manner. And I will pick Chucky because Child's Play is one of my favorite horror franchises. I love its consistency. I love that it reinvents itself every couple of installments. And I'm interested to see uh, what they're going to do with a TV format. So, yeah, so that's my one is Chucky. Hi, I'm Chucky. And I'm your friend to the end. Heidi fucking ho. Ha, ha, ha. Now, speaking of nostalgia, existing IPs, adapting things for a new audience, we're going to talk about quite a film. Vincent's going to take us through what is, spoiler alert, one of my favourite films of the year. So, Vincent, take it away. What about Dune? Well, you know, Dune is so much movie, it's spicy. Um. <laughs> Dune is a true epic in the sense that Star Wars, I think, always aspired to, but always got fumbled somewhat. Um, In this respect, I mean epic as a work of narrative art 
in an elevated style that recounts the deeds of a legendary or historical hero. And this means it needs to be a tale that provides equal focus on the macro and micro scale. Now, speaking of macro scale, the anticipation for Dune was immense due to the, you know, um, the immense reputation of Frank Herbert's novel, um, both in terms of its place within science fiction literature and literature in general, as well as its reputation for being unfilmable. It was previously filmed by David Lynch, by all accounts, badly, and Dune was delayed. It was originally meant to come out in 2020, and like so many films, was pushed back. And for a while, there was concern that it might um, have gone straight to streaming, which would have been unfortunate, I think. Um, so I think the amount of anticipation was about as was was as large as an enormous sandworm. Um, but what I can say, and well, uh, Russell, you stole some of my thunder, damn you. But <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Denis Villeneuve's film rewards in every possible way. It is genuinely epic and it is thoroughly immersive. I think it's important to note that despite the advanced technology, the bizarre and disturbing human enhancements, the interplanetary politics, the shadowy organizations, and the curious states of heightened consciousness Dune offers clear storytelling, stunning visuals, and it's got well-delineated characters. Now, streamlined narrative focuses on the exploitation of the planet Arrakis and the journey of our Paul hero, Paul Atreides. Now, I'm going to say, I have never been a big fan of Timothée Chalamet, or Timothée Chalamet. I've always found him a bit too much of a waif, but I think here that waifness is used to good effect. And... Paul's development over the film perfectly mirrors the viewer's steady immersion into the world of Dune. Now, it's not a particularly original story. It's weird that in some ways it feels kind of derivative of things like Star Wars, except, of course, they are themselves derivative of the original, of the novel of um, Dune, in the same way that when the film John Carter of Mars came out, it, was, it felt derivative, but it is itself actually an influence in its original form. Um, but anyway, I don't think that matters because originality is of little consequence when the world building is realized so perfectly. We see the planet Arrakis, also called Dune, and the other worlds of this empire, um, they are living tactile environments. Um, I made a point, I'd had a few bad cinema experiences lately, including Halloween Kills, in uh, cinema audiences talking, uh, which I detest. Um, I didn't want that for Dune. So I went to a 10.30 Saturday morning screening um, and sat right at the front of the cinema. We don't have an IMAX where I am. So I did the next best thing, which is sit as close to a, the cinema screen as possible. And it was worth it because I could feel the scorching sun of Arrakis, suns of Arrakis and the damp air of the planet Caledon, home of the Atreides. Similarly, I could feel the vibrations of the desert and the whipping of the sandstorms. And I didn't see this in DX, I should point out. Um, I, could get, I could feel the social, the political and economic forces at work, often tied to the stacked cast, because my goodness, there's a lot of cast here. 
Um, and, but I think it, the film works very well because we learn the audience, we learn new details of the manipulation, the ambition and betrayal, just as the characters do. Now, it's important to note, I think, that Denis Villeneuve is one of the few modern directors who really trust the audience will fill in the gaps. Um, we don't need explanations for everything, such as how space travel works or why the spice, the spice melange that is mined from the planet Arrakis, um, why it has these effects. Because when cinema is this enveloping, the viewer gets transported into the film's world. Um, the production design hits the balance between functional and futuristic. The cinematography is breathtaking. The score is eerie and ethereal. It's um, Hans Zimmer, who else? Um, using, but quite unusually for him, choral work. And the choral, choral singing um, on the score is really impressive. Um, and it's got propulsive storytelling. Um, it's a set, this is a sensory overload of cinematic magic. You've got cinematic, you've got visceral action, which balances choreography with pain, skill with physicality, plot with progression with character development. And the scale shifts from the, from the shifting of sand grains to the gargantuan sandworms. We've got long takes harmonized with fast cuts, long shots of the landscape cut to intimate close-ups that turn the actors' features into landscapes in their own right. There's slow-mo, which conveys the elevated experience of the spice without ever becoming indulgent. So if I could sum this up, Dune is an awe-inspiring, intense, dazzling, and magnificent experience. And its only shortcoming is it leaves the viewer wanting more. But that's okay, because we're getting part two. I liked it. How about you two? <laughs> uh, James, as a fan of the book, how did you find it? Now, last year, I went on a bit of a journey. I read Frank Herbert's original novel, and I went through the filmography of David Lynch. So falling in love with both of them, I look forward to watching Lynch's take on the novel, even with the bad words people often say about it. So I was a bit dismayed to see those bad words were full of truth. And yeah, it turns out adapting a large book into a one film is possibly not a good idea. Um, uh, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here because Denny Villeneuve, the director who gave us a Blade Runner sequel, which controversially I consider better than the original, gave us Arrival, which I call one of the greatest science fiction films of the past, of the last decade, okay. among many other magnificent films. He was adapting this novel, which he loved and giving it the space by splitting it into two books. Now, I took the day off work to go and see it opening day. Unfortunately, I went to the first screening, which had a bunch of teenage girls there who were chatting throughout. <sighs> yeah, they were chatting for about 60% of the film before, some, before a man came over to them and said, either quiet down or get out. And in all honesty, their chatting did not did not ruin the experience for me because what Denny Villeneuve did is give me everything I wanted from a feature film adaptation of this novel. He swept me along to 
these worlds, I felt transported to Arrakis in ways I haven't felt transported in quite a while from a film. I think Denis Villeneuve wonderfully realised this epic journey with such breathtaking scope and scale. It's, well, probably, it's funny you mentioned Star Wars in your early on, Vincent, because Star Wars was very much inspired by Dune. And thankfully, this yeah, and thankfully this doesn't have um, what John Carter film unfortunately had, where you inspired so much, but when it comes to you getting your own film, you can't re- you struggle a bit to step apart from what you inspired, which got a film before you, because Dune feels in a world of its own, not just. Oh, Star Wars, but adult or whatever dismissals could be said. And it helps that this is such a magnificent cast who embody their characters so well. I mean, Jason Momoa gives Duncan Idaho the portrayal he deserves because in Lynch's adaptation, he's just virtually there to get killed off and say hello at one point. It's unfortunate and it's fantastic that Jason Momoa really gives him the the character what he deserves I do think it's very much a part one film but that doesn't lessen up how much I adored this tale how much I was swept along with the tragedy and thrills and I really can't wait to go and watch it again and I very much can't wait to watch part two when it eventually comes up and I'm very interested who's going to take the Sting role and potentially don some speed metal Speedos or whatever Sting is wearing <laughs> in that film. Um, Russell, what about you? Any thoughts on the Speedos? Well, I, I've only seen the images of Sting in Speedos. I, I've never watched the David Lynch version. Um, its reputation precedes it in a way that leads me to, trep- to have trepidation. Um, I really want to be the dissenting voice here. I really want to say I didn't love this, but I did. I utterly adored what Dune was doing. I went in not expecting a bad film, but expecting a film that would not find an audience because I, there's a, it's a story that's been told several times in box office terms. There'll be a film that will come out with huge ambitions, with the ambition to start a franchise, and it, it doesn't pan out because audiences don't want it or because it just doesn't find its audience. And no, June is a spectacular work. It looks and sounds uh, the, the, visually, it's incredible. As Vincent broke down some of the shots, and the choice of shots is really interesting. Hans Zimmer's score is spectacular, even if his use of bagpipes is haunting. Um, <laughs> the cast are all fabulous, even if they're on the screen for mere minutes, they leave an impression, and it's a fully formed world that we step into that I haven't quite experienced cinematically for a long time, both because of the pandemic and because cinema frustratingly is, is sort of addicted to attempts at cinematic universes, attempts at telling a never-ending stories. And while this is the first part of a story, it feels like it's going somewhere. It feels like the story is going to have a conclusion. It feels like we're having a story being told to us in a not dissimilar way to say the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, that the Fellowship of the Ring is one installment of a trilogy and this is one installment of two or three parts depending on what Denise is allowed to do um yeah I I loved this I loved what it did 
it's the first film since the pandemic that I felt lived up to the hype. I feel that films delayed for me because they have to be marketed several times over. And this has been hyped for a long time. You kind of come out of it because they're just films a bit underwhelmed. At least I do. So Bond kind of underwhelmed me. And I think it's a perfectly enjoyable film. Halloween Kills was not the uh, great Halloween film I wanted it to be, but it was fun. Uh, Last Night in Soho was heavily flawed, but also kind of impressive. But again, hyped and hyped and hyped and hyped. Whereas Dune has been hyped and hyped and hyped and hyped. And it surpassed my expectations. It was a a remarkable work. And it's really my own folly because, I mean, Denise Villeneuve's work is incredible. Prisoners is a fantastic thriller. Blade Runner 2049 is a fascinating sequel to a fascinating film. And Arrival is one of the great films of the last 10 years or so. So I should have expected to uh, love this. And I did. And yeah. Oh, and Oscar Isaac's beard is fabulous. He looks fabulous. Yeah, a a really great cast. And uh, it's the rare thing of a film that doesn't really conclude. Because the story doesn't really conclude. It's not really a spoiler to tell you there's going to be a sequel and that the story continues. And there's a lot of exposition and a lot of uh, world building going on. But the way it's done and constructed, the script isn't clunky. The shots are beautiful. I wanted to stay in this world for even longer. I want this to be a 10-hour immersion in this world. And so I'm very excited that there's a sequel. When I saw this, I saw this, uh, the Picture House Cinema chain had a series of previews on the Monday before release. And so at that point, there was no determination whether or not there was going to be a sequel. It felt that they probably were going to give this a sequel if it did okay in America. And so watching it, not knowing that there's going to be another one is a bittersweet experience. And so I want to watch it again. I might go to the cinema this weekend to watch it again because uh, I miss Arrakis. (laughs) (laughs) I miss the immersion that this film is. And this is a very immersive work of scope and scale that I just... Yeah, it's one of my favourites of the year and of the blockbusters I've seen since I don't know when. I don't know what was the last blockbuster I kind of adored this much. A couple of other things I'll say. Um, I mean, it's interesting that we've all uh, mentioned the idea of a bit of Dune being enveloping, immersive. It's a, tra- it's a transportive experience. And I mean, I'll just say for me personally, the last time I think I had an experience like this, and some people are going to roll their eyes at this, um, was Avatar. I think that was um, a, uh, for me, that was a transportive and uh, transcendent experience. And Dune is the first time I think I've had that since then. So, you know, that's been 12 years since um, I've had that. And I'm not going to say this is, you know, well, it's Avatar, but in the desert, (laughs) or Avatar is Dune in the jungle. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for this type of, um, this archetypal sort of story. In response to who might wear the Speedos, well, considering the big lugs we've had so far, we've had Jason Momoa, we've got Dave Bautista, for the role of Fade Ralpha, played by Sting previously, come on, it's got to be Dwayne Johnson. Because <laughs> <laughs> we know he can pull off wearing a, cup, wearing a pair of opposing pouch, in effect. <laughs> Um, one interesting name I heard someone bandy about was Barry Keoghan. Oh, oh yes. I love Barry. Oh, mm. yes. Well, I have the idea this week, and it will link into a film we'll talk about soon, to do a podcast all about him. But 
I think that's folly on my part to do a Barry Kogan <laughs> podcast, but God, he's great. And maybe scary. a mini season, maybe a mini series, maybe a little hmm. jaunt out there. Uh, yeah. So I think we can all agree that Dune is, I mean, if you listen to this, you've probably gone and watched it already. Probably we don't really need to tell you how great it is, but yeah, if you haven't, God, go down to the cinema and watch it. It's, and it's, it's, I'm not really one for this kind of constant debate of cinema versus streaming, but this is one film that I think deserves a big screen experience separate from um, anyone talking, really. It deserves a good sound system to just take it all in. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dream them? Yes. And we're going to let the positivity continue. Last episode, we had the sin bin, where we threw away stuff that we really didn't care for. And as much fun as that is, we like to be positive here at Invasion of the Potty People. We like to tell you what you should go off and watch. So instead, this time, we're going to elevate some stuff. We're going to do some elevation. If I was Bono, I'd probably sing that now. I think that's from the Tomb Raider film. That Rise up from Hamilton. <laughs> Rise up. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're going to give you a sequel, remake, and original film that either are not critically loved or we think people should talk more about. We think that they're really doozies of, of uh, films. Uh, James, you're going kick to us, kick us off, aren't you? I am indeed. And I'm starting with my sequel, which is a little-known film called Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Now, everyone knows Gremlins. I'm wearing Gizmo on, my t- on myself at this very moment. He's very much a beloved icon, and the film is a Christmas staple, which ITV2 will happily show 40 times among Hot Fuzz, Green Lantern, and whatever Hangover sequel is on that weekend. Um, Now, Gremlins 2, yeah, it's a sequel to a massive film that's of quite a bit of pop culture, but it feels like it's uh, overshadowed by being, by coming after such what's considered a classic. And it's a very, it's a darn shame because it does what you'd hope from a sequel, which is not replicate what, not just be a retread of what worked the first time, but go in its own way and do its own thing. So Billy and Kate now live in New York. They work in this high-tech office park run by a John Glover's media mogul who was very much a stand-in for a certain... uh, pussy grabbing dickhead who became president as of late (laughs) but at this time they find themselves reunited with gizmo and hilarity ensues through a series of accidents which leaves us with a whole new generation of gremlins made who have their own genetically altered powers now if you've been on youtube you might have stumbled upon a wonderful sketch by key and peel which is for the Gremlins 2 writer room, where essentially every writer in the writer room gets to come up with their own random Gremlin, and it's included in the film. And that feels very much on point for this film. 
because Joe Dante was reluctant to do it, but he was essentially given free reign to do whatever he wanted, just as long as he made a Gremlin sequel. So he used the opportunity to pretty much bring a Looney Tunes animation to life in ways which are so wickedly humorous, delightfully meta, and horrific in all the right ways. You tell me that Spider Gremlin is not haunting, and I will call you a liar, dear listener. Now, <laughs> you tell me what other film would have the film stop so the gremlins would take over it, only for Hulk Hogan to threaten them to run the film as normal. It's an inspired piece of comedy genius. And I, the more I think about it, the more I actually prefer it to the original, which I absolutely adore. And yes, it got 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is well regarded, but it does feel overshadowed. And it's a shame because it deserves as it deserves the love, especially when you've got Christopher Lee as a mad scientist in that film. Come on, man, Christopher Lee. And in terms of remakes, I've decided to go for 2004's The Grudge. Now, in this one, Sarah Michelle Gellar plays an American nurse who lives and works in Tokyo. Only she's exposed to a mysterious supernatural curse, which locks a person in a powerful rage before claiming their life and spreading to another victim. Now, Takashi Shimizu adapts his own feature film, Due on the Grudge, for American audiences this time. And... Let's be honest. It's it was an the two thousands was an era lacking of lacking of remakes worth the time. I mean, there were good ones within there. That was the Hills Have Have Eyes remake was in there. People like I've heard some people praise the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Um, the Ring. Um, yes, that's another good one. The Ring. Jesus, how did I miss the Ring when I'm talking about the Grudge, especially when they had a crossover? Christ. Uh, but I think this is a fine example of how to do a remake right. For starters, they haven't relocated the film to American America just to, I don't know, make it easier for audiences to get on board. It's still centralised in Japan, and it allows for the American characters to feel isolated and alienated, as though they're facing their own personal, horror, personal horrors before Kayako ever appears to really screw him over and in a wise decision i find the story's been streamlined by centering on the lead character and it rids itself of extraneous subplots which i think lessened the original for me in places now i do wish there were more scares but it feels like a more focused feature which gives us a story which allows us to get engaged with the key figures and i would choose this remake over well, much certainly over the 2020 film, because, geez. But I do think this is a decent remake, which, well, audiences weren't there for it. It got 46% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, and critics weren't there either, for considering it's 40% rating. But I think it's a decent remake worth your time, particularly if you want to follow it on with on the, follow it on after Due on the Grudge. Just, and no one would... F- blame you for leaving out the 2020 film and now for my original film i've gone for a 2010 japanese feature called confessions now this opens with a junior high school teacher played by takako matsu announcing to a rowdy class that she's going to resign before spring break now what are the reasons why 
I'm getting there. Now, what writer-director Tetsuya Nakashima has done is open the film with this gripping and emotional, emotionally engaging setup because the lead character is speaking to a class about how her, da- her young daughter was unfortunately murdered. And she reveals to the class that was by two of the students in that very same class. It's a very talkative opener and the lead actress absolutely commands the screen with her performance playing this grieving mother who's full of determination to have her revenge. And you know what? It reaches the point viewers may be expecting at the 20 minute mark. After that, there is a whole rest of the film to go and it lends its way to this really gripping piece of psychological warfare. And as the narrative unfolds, you see layers revealing themselves to both the story and the characters. And it all builds up to this explosive finale which will stay with you and it's a I do think this film was overlooked despite its 81% Rotten Tomatoes score and maybe that's because it's not available on streaming services you would have to actually buy the DVD to watch it and it's such a shame because I think this is such a magnificent film which is deserving of people watching it, talking about and having, oh my God, I can't believe that reactions shared. I think it's such a magnificent piece and I would encourage you all to watch it. And that's my three choices, which I feel deserve elevating. Now, let's talk this over. I can get you diseases. You'd like that, wouldn't you? what's going on in this room because i think there are some fascinating ramifications here for the future vincent would you like to go next by any chance why not okay well fittingly uh, we're recording this um on the day that saw the release of the latest trailer for spider-man no way home and the internet has gone bonkers over this of course and i want to talk about a previous third Spider-Man film, the aptly named Spider-Man 3 from 2007, the third Spider-Man film directed by Sam Raimi and starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst and James Franco. Now, Spider-Man 3 carries 63% critical score on Rotten Tomatoes, which, you know, isn't terrible. However, um, most times I've had conversations about this movie it tends to get it tends to get slated. Um, I think it gets a bad. It seems to get a bad rep, of which personally I think it's not fair. Now I'll say it is a messier and less successful than the previous two installments, or indeed the more recent offerings. But I submit that Raimi's third entry explores its central premise of inner struggle effectively. It uses the tagline "The greatest struggle lies within." And 
what we see in Spider-Man 3 is, is various characters actually wrestling with these internal problems. Peter Parker himself, also Harry Osborn, and indeed also Flint Marco, um, all of whom are trying to reconcile different parts of themselves, quite literally in some cases. Um, it also explores the difficulties of keeping what you have, while along the way offering spectacle and excitement by the shovel load. Now, its biggest problems are excess. There are too many characters. It would have worked, I think, a lot better as two films. Um, there's actually a point in it where you could see the setup for the fourth film, which is when Venom first appears. Venom would have been a great villain for Spider-Man 4. I don't have a problem with Dark Peter. I think the, I don't have an issue with the dancing. Um, some people say, oh, God, no, not the dancing, please, not that. It's even referenced in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Well, I don't think it, I don't have a problem with it. And it seems pretty minor anyway, in that respect. And I'm also a sucker for a redemption arc, and which we really do get for Harry Osborn, um, played by James Franco. Now, OK, fine. The memory loss thing is a bit lame, but I think when he gets his memory back, Harry's manipulation of Peter and Mary Jane, his embitterment, um, his twisted relationship with the memory of his father, his fight with Peter, and then his, you know, spoiler alert for a 14-year-old film, Harry's eventual sacrifice always gets me in the feels. So for all of that, I will elevate Spider-Man 3. I'm going to sort of work my way down here. Um, Actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to go down and then up again and up slightly. So the next one, this is going to get, yeah, exactly. I'm going wavy. It's like sand dunes. <laughs> um, last, in our last episode, I put um, the original Friday the 13th in the, the, sorry, the original Nightmare on Elm Street in the bin, which probably annoyed some people. Well, I'm going to annoy you again because I'm going to elevate the remake of Friday the 13th from 2009, directed by Marcus Nispel. Now this film carries a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, critical score. And let's be fair, remakes in general and Platinum Dunes horror remakes especially get a bad rep. Now I've seen a bunch of Friday the 13th sequels over the past year and a bit, and they tend to be really sloppy. They are sloppily written, badly shot and very clumsily edited. I think Jason Takes Manhattan is a real low point. <laughs> Whereas the remake is properly nasty. It has some daft ideas, but at least it sticks to them. And it's got some decent production values, which matter to me. Um, it's slick and shiny. We get to see a bunch of horrible, privileged people get killed nastily. And I am all for that. It does this weird thing um, in these tunnels, and I think that's quite imaginative. And, you know, this is going to make some eyes roll. I think the sex scene in it is really hot. <laughs> um, if, you, if you've not seen it, don't worry. The sex scene doesn't involve Jason. <laughs> I know, disappointing. Um, and there are some genuine surprises. So for all those reasons, um, I elevate the remake of Friday the 13th. Now, my original is a slight increase in terms of its scoring, but I think it's probably the most obscure. Uh, my original elevation is Black Hat from 2015, directed by Michael Mann. Now, 
Black Hat currently carries a 32% critical score on Rotten Tomatoes, but I think it's more low appreciation because it, it's largely unseen. I remember this came and went in 2015. It showed in uh, my in my t- hometown for only one week, and I the only time I could act, the only showing of it was at 4 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon. And when I saw it, there were about five other people there, all of them also solitary men. Um, now I went to see this because I am the man man. I wrote a book about Michael Mann, so my interest in this film and my bias towards it was inevitable. But I think despite that, I would recommend this film for other, others because it's something that offers intrigue, tension and action um, uh, in, uh, in copious amounts. I think it's an ingenious exploration of existence within the digitized post-human world. We have Chris Hemsworth as the world's hunkiest hacker, He joins a tiny task force between the FBI and the Chinese army to investigate some major hacks um, into places like um, stock exchange, um, nuclear power plants, so on. Um, And this task force, they chase international criminals from Beijing to Hong Kong to Jakarta. Um, Michael Mann has this wonderfully vibrant visual style. Um, He embraced the digital format of filmmaking um, before it became before long before it became standard, um, and the film has this um, sort of constant motion, while also being deeply paranoid. You have these wide-angled shots, and you're constantly like, "Okay, well, there's somebody, there's something else in this shot, isn't there? Something's going to attack, going to open fire at me." Um, so it's got this deep paranoia, but also I think an embrace of the digital flux. There's no sort of certainty here, either in um, people's actions or even in their identity. And the film kind of leans into that. Um, Man is an intensely philosophical filmmaker. Uh, that's what I wrote my book about. And I think Black Hat takes the existential concerns of think, films like The Insider and Collateral, and it gives them a, a boots them hard into the digital age. So for all of these reasons, Black Hat is elevated. You want a staff job, and you want a staff job. Anybody care about what I want? I do. Shut up. Get out. I want the public to see Spider-Man for the two-bit criminal he really is. He's a fake. He's full of stick'em. Catch him in the act. Spider-Man with his hand in a cookie jar. Whoever brings me that photo gets a job. Russell, how about you? What are you going to put up there? Well, uh, what am I going to put there? Firstly, my sequel. So this is perhaps maybe the first ever legacy sequel, the first ever sequel to a film that came out many years before. So this is... Psycho 2, which comes out 23 years after the original. And I know you're thinking, do we really need a sequel to Psycho? Well, yes, this film is stonkingly good fun, fascinating exploration of how you follow up one of the great horror films. So this follows Norman Bates once he leaves psychiatric care. So he's been in there for 22 years, comes out and returns home. And of course, there's no one in his house, but For some reason, the house still stands, the motel still runs, all of it is still there. And so he returns to run his motel, and he's still haunted by crimes, by ghosts of his past, by his mother, by nefarious people who are not doing things for his best interest. It's a fascinating film. It's how I wish a lot of slashes actually followed themselves up, which is to take 
several years after explore what it would mean to try and, I don't know, have Michael Myers become a gardener and then have Loomis there running around screaming about how he's evil when actually it's just Myers is trying to be normal having gone through the uh, correctional facilities. Uh, Anthony Perkins is fabulous in this. He's really, really great in this. It's a really interesting performance from him. And Richard Franklin directs and he directed Patrick and Link and some other uh, fun uh, culty films. And yeah, this, this is a terrific watch. It's one of my favorite horror sequels because of the way it approaches its subject matter, that it's interesting, that it's funny, that it's violent. It's more violent than the original, a lot more violent than the original um, in the way that it is an 80s film. So it's, yeah, Psycho 2 is, is great. It's vastly better than the remake, which is not going to be my elevated remake. It has 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's not critically hated, but the audience score is 55%. So, you know, I think some audiences don't much care for this. And I have a lot of fun with this. I think it's a really entertaining approach to doing a sequel to Psycho, which is arguably one of the great films of its era, one of the great horrors, one of the great slashes, a proto-slasher. Yeah, there's so much in Psycho, and it's fascinating that at the very peak of the psycho, uh, not psycho, at the very peak of the slasher boom, we got a psycho sequel. And there have been a few others. There's been a psycho TV show in Bates Motel. There is an ill judged shot for shot remake, bar an inclusion of a Vince Vaughn stimulating himself. And <sighs> a cow. And a cow. Okay. Uh, and actually, I saw the remake of Psycho before I saw the original. So my psycho mm. should be the remake, but even I know that it's not so great. But yeah. Psycho 2 is worth seeking out. It's utterly fascinating. And I'm always for a horror sequel that isn't just either bigger and more special effects or the exact same film again. My remake is Fright Night. So the original is from the 80s. This is from 2011. It's the exact same story as the original. It's uh, when a new neighbor moves in next door to someone in true rear window fashion, he thinks there's something up with him and he comes to the conclusion that maybe he's a vampire. So he goes and seeks out the help of a famous vampire killer. It's all very entertaining and silly. The 80s one is silly. This one is silly. It's from Craig Gillespie. Uh, Anton Yelchin, the beloved Anton Yelchin, is the lead. Colin Farrell plays a particularly sexy vampire in this. David Tennant is having a lot of fun. This is big and silly and sexy and it's very well done and put together i'm not really a huge fan of vampire films i know shock horror they just don't ever really do much for me but this one i have a lot of fun with i probably prefer to the original i think the original is 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 a tad to 80s but you can love both you can have both uh this is critically 72 percent so there were some fans of this but again that dreaded Rotten Tomato audience score is 59%. So the audiences are not that big a fan of this, but I have so much fun with Fright Night. I think it is uh, kind of smart, often very funny, rather sexy. I mean, I've, I think Colin Farrell is pretty sexy in this film and, you know, good horror. There's good horror in this and it doesn't matter if it lies with me. You're not that much of a fan of a vampire film because This is a lot of fun. And my final, my original, my original is not a critically disliked film. It's quite a critically praised film. It's won some awards. It has 
88% on Rotten Tomatoes. It stars uh, some we've already talked about briefly, Barry Kogan, but it is not a film that I think people particularly talk about. And that is American Animals. And I, every chance I get that I can praise American Animals, I'm going to take. So this comes from documentarian Barry Layton, and it's a sort of documentary, sort of drama. It's all about a real life heist that took place in a, an American college. And it's about four young men who are kind of bored and decide to steal the most expensive book ever made. And it, I, I kind of pitch to people as the social network, but if the grand plan is not a society-destroying uh, website, but in fact to steal, steal an expensive book. It's basically about, again, mediocre, and I hate to say this, white uh, Americans, but it could be guys, white guys, who think that they are better than they are, and so set themselves on a path to do something a, uh, that they probably shouldn't do. And in Facebook's term, it's, you know, to destroy us all. And in these guys' terms, it's still this book. This is fast, funny, uh, brilliantly put together. There are moments when the real-life subject matter interact with the people playing them, and it's, it's just so well-judged and observed. Evan Peters is in it and he's terrific. Barry Cogan is in this. And again, he is terrific. The performances are terrific. This is fun up until the point where it's not meant to be fun. And that's why this film is clever is because it has a sting in its tail. And I feel there's so much of, of understanding the kind of problems of, I guess, the West and in particular America in this, of why I think there are some social convulsions that take place in America over the, next, over the last 10, 15 years all feel embodied in this film it's it's yeah it's gripping and it's extraordinary and i think it should be watched by more people so of course i'm going to elevate this film because i think it's a masterpiece in the way that i don't think psycho 2 and fright night are i think psycho 2 and fright night are fun interesting uh horror watches i think american animals is a goddamn masterpiece and more people should watch it and if you're only now finding out about Barry Cogan, go off and watch this and, you know, slap, slap in The Killing of a Sacred Deer too, because that's also pretty fucking brilliant. Anyway, I love this film. I'm elevating it. No argument here. <laughs> oh, yeah. This would be something dangerous and very exciting. This library is home to the most valuable book in the United States. $12 million. You really need to see how easy this is going to be. Oh, you know this from all your previous ice? So yeah, so we will do that again because it's fun to praise films as much as it is fun to, you know, stick them away somewhere and us not talk about them ever again. It's fun to talk about the films we love. Um, and we're going to leave you with our recommendations, our something recommendations. So as often is the case we do something old something new and something not a movie we each take one of these subjects and we give you something to love to embrace and take in and we're going to start with something new oh that's me um i'm going with something a bit prestigious because my selection is the winner of this year's Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and it's only the second time a female director has won this award and following in the likes of I, Daniel Blake, The Tree of Life and Parasite, 
I have Julia DeCorno's follow-up feature, Titan, which is French for titanium. Now, I don't want to admit, admit, I don't want to say too much about the plot because this is something which deserves to be experienced fresh. So all I'll say is that you have this lead character, Alexia, who has a titanium plate in her head. And as an adult, she has this, let's say, attraction to motor vehicles. If you think the Fast and the Furious gang love cars, brace yourselves. What we have here is an outstanding piece of body horror. And it focuses focusing on themes of trauma and para parenthood. And it's centered around these astonishing performances, for, especially from Vincent Linden and as our lead Agathe Roussel. Oh, I really hope I didn't butcher your name. And what this film just proves is that Julia de Corno deserves every resource available to keep making films. Because with just two films between this and Raw, she's made a clear one outstanding and unique voice she is in modern day filmmaking. Um, it comes out uh, on the 31st of December, so literally last day of the year. Go see it. It will hopefully rank highly in your list. And for me, this is just a must see my love for which my love keeps growing. And I really can't wait until it's out here so I can watch it again. Vroom, vroom. Oh, very jealous of you, by the way, for watching this. It's very high up on my to watch this, but yeah. This film sounds like it might be uh, it's like um, David Cronenberg's Crash, but, you know, enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vincent, what's your something old? My something old is Only Yesterday, which is not to say that I saw it only yesterday, but anyway... One day we should do a feature on films which the titles of which lend themselves to jokes. Um, lately, I've been working my way through the work of Studio Ghibli, uh, guided by Russell's recent season on Studio Ghibli for the other excellent podcast he hosts, um, Not Just for Kids. In an episode with the mighty Professor Rainer Dennison, uh, Russell discussed the work of Isao Takahata. Now, I recently checked out also Grave of the Fireflies, which has a rep for being heartbreaking. Only Yesterday is by the same director, Iso Takahata, um, and was released a few years later, 1991, and is also actually kind of heartbreaking. Um, Only Yesterday is a charming and whimsical, yet bittersweet, deeply touching portrayal of memory and coming of age. Now, it's fair to say it's not a particularly remarkable story. It's about a young woman's holiday. At the age of 27, our protagonist Teiko takes a trip to the country. And we also flashback um, to when she visited the same farm as a child. Um, so she goes to this uh, working, she goes on a sort of working holiday to a farm. And we also see that she visited it uh, when, she was, um, when she was much younger. And through this split narrative, the film takes us on a journey through so much heart, spirit, and pathos that I felt wistful, nostalgic, mournful, and deeply moving, deeply moved. I think it's every bit as touching as what you might expect from Ghibli, um, but it also has some interesting comments about the tensions between modernity and tradition, as well as between the urban and the rural. Now, I won't pretend to know what these tensions and concepts mean in Japanese culture, but I will say that as a white Westerner, it was deeply affecting. 
Uh, Takahata is sometimes, I think, overlooked because of the prominence of Hayao Miyazaki. But Only Yesterday is well worth your time. And it's available on Netflix. And I highly recommend it. Russell, what have you got for us? Uh, I have, to keep the podcasting theme slightly in place, my something not a movie, is to elevate two podcasts that I am so very addicted to. And they're from the same kind of creative uh, duo. So you'll hear familiar voices with them. Uh, the first one is Sudden Double Deep, which is, or the Triple uh, Bill title podcast, which is this fabulous way of approaching what films to cover on a podcast, because these are all films that share a word in the title. I began my journey with the Willy Triple, which is a fil- film called uh, Millie Willy, Free Willy 2, and Willy's Wonderland. And from there, I've covered all kinds of words. They've recently done kills, where they covered winter kills, machete kills, and of course, Halloween kills. They have covered all kinds of works. There's the uh, men triple bill, which is children of men, all the presence men and 12 angry men, which I went off and watched all three of those. And it was a really re- rewarding rewatch. Sometimes you get utter gems like this. Sometimes you get, you know, not so good films and that's all part of it. And it's hosted by a trio of wonderful presenters uh, that just liven up the subject they're covering. They bring in interesting anecdotes. They bring in new information. They have some, you know, fun jokes in the mix it's it's wonderful and if you listen to them the kind of way that i have you start to pick up the in jokes the patterns the the way they work and they are always worth listening to and i end up with one two sometimes three films that i then have to go off and watch again because they cover some fascinating stuff and two of them do is paul dano okay now Paul Dano is is one of the great actors of our generation. Well, probably the generation slightly above us. But anyway, he's one of the great actors uh-huh. currently acting. He is also someone who is often punched, slapped, kicked, hit, shot, uh, killed. All manner of terrible things happen to poor, poor Paul Dano. And this is a podcast that goes film by film, talks about those films, talks about his performance, and also the pain he goes through. So... We've had Denise Villeneuve. There's a Prisoners episode out there quite recently. There's There Will Be Blood. There's Little Miss Sunshine. There's all his films, including the stuff you've probably never heard of or forgotten he was in, right up to The Batman, which is coming very soon. So, yeah, these are two podcasts that I am so wholeheartedly addicted to that I have a lot of fun with. And Is Paul Dano OK gets on terrific guests. Like Chris Hewitt was on it recently. It gets on Writers on Empire and various other publications. It, yeah, it's it's really a terrific podcast in those terms. So those are my two something not a movies. And occasionally, uh, I don't know if Paul Dano has been any straight horror, but there is horror elements to some of his films. And also Sudden Double Deep will occasionally delve into horror as with their kills, where they covered Halloween kills. They then did an additional episode or a deeper episode, as they call it, where they covered all the Halloween films, which, you know, I would long to do, long to talk about those films, bar, you know, some of the worst ones. But yeah, these are two podcasts that I think are very much worth your time. So go off and listen. After you finish listening to us, of course. You know, finish us first, then look them up in your podcasting feed.
So there you have it. Two films and two podcasts to go off and watch. And yeah, Only Yesterday is absolutely 100, 100% worth what you watch. All of Ghibli or Ghibli's back catalogue, Bar Grave of the Fireflies, can be found on Netflix right now. And Grave of the Fireflies is one of the ones that I don't really recommend to people because it's a lot. <laughs> After watching Grave of the Fireflies, you might need some sort of intravenous um, replacement of fluids because you'll have cried all of them out. Jesus, yeah. I mean, they did, it was released with a double bill with My Neighbor Totoro. So maybe you can watch My <laughs> Neighbor Totoro once you've finished it. But even then, My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, watch them that way round. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been another episode of Invasion of the Potty People. Before we go and do something fun with our evenings, well, as fun as talking about films, guys, where can we find everyone? James, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04, that's with two Ds, and I have my own I have my own site where I do reviews, articles, I link podcast appearances at thereviewingrodders.co.uk, and that's where you can find me. Vincent, where can people find you? Well, you can come on holiday with me to Arrakis or Hack My Identity, on Twitter at Dr. Gain, that's D-R-G-A-I-N-E, where I link to the reviews that I write for the Critical Movie Critics and for Bloody Good Screen, um, including um, a recent review of Halloween Kills. Um, so you can get a more detailed account of what I thought of that there. But yeah, come find, come, come tweet at me and tell me um, how wrong I am about um, the remake of Friday the 13th. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, bloody good screens is where you can find stuff from me and James as well. I've recently put up a review of a film called Habit, and probably by the time this goes out, I will have given you all a review of Slumber Party Massacre, which if you're going to seek a film out, seek that one out because it's a lot of fun. And James has recently, for his sins, ranked all the Hellraiser sequels, and, and having only seen two of the Hellraiser sequels, I assume they're all utterly, well, not sequels, only two of the Hellraisers, I assume they're all utterly fabulous films james they have such shite to show you <laughs> <laughs> and if you like my voice well as vincent's already said i have a podcast called not just for kids we are at the end of our 90s season and there's been 21 weeks worth of 90s-ness to cover james has come on for both jim carrey and will smith so he's had the highs of the mask and men in black and the Lows of Liar Liar and Wild Wild West and Vincent's come on for Titanic Terminator 2 and The Last Action Hero so uh, uh, either a James Cameron sandwich or a Arnold Schwarzenegger sandwich depending on your persuasion and yeah I will be giving you Christmas specials I've got four Christmas specials ranging from covering Die Hard yes I know it's not a family film but it's Christmas and I want to talk about Die Hard all the way to It's a Wonderful Life through many of the fabulous films. And then I've got wonderful plans in the New Year's as we build towards musicals. Yes, we're going to do some singing, guys. And if you want to find me on Twitter, go to Russ Loves Movies. That's where I retweet all my stuff. But as always, thank you so much for listening. It's a strange time in a strange world and we Hope we can bring you some comfort in 
going through horror and genre films. If you've not watched Dune, go out and Braver Cinema. It's it's absolutely worth your time. And we'll be maybe back. go first thing in the morning. Go first thing in the morning. Go for a nice early one. Go yeah, go right into the front of that screen and take it all in. But we'll be back real soon with even more recommendations and thoughts and opinions about our beloved genre and you know stuff all around it. But for now, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.